There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast, our first episode post-Canadian election, Greg. That's right. And what happened in that election, Colin? Well, I have no idea because we're <laughs> recording this before the results come out. Right. But well, Can't you see the future? Can't you predict the future? You know, I've tried for many years to predict the future with things like the stock market, and that hasn't gone very well for no. me. So no. I'm not going to try to predict the future of the election. Well, actually, let me just say this. My prediction is that the party with the most votes will be our government. Folks, you heard it here first. <laughs> because last week we spent time talking about the impact of elections on stock markets, something we've addressed in the previous U.S. election and now in this most recent Canadian election. As you already pointed out, by the time this episode airs, we'll already know the results of the most current federal election in Canada. But if anybody's interested in that discussion on what impact elections have on markets and market returns, I would recommend that they go back and listen to that episode. Sure. And also to the one on U.S. elections, I believe it was called yeah, but it's different this time. I thought they were pretty well done, but I'm pretty biased. With good reason. (laughs) But for today's show, we had a listener ask us to break down the different account structures that are available to investors. So that's what we're going to spend our time on. We're calling this one looking under the hood. And for all those other listeners, if there are any topics that you'd like us to cover, well, then just drop us a line. I mean, we love to hear from people about things they'd like us to talk about. For sure. Because we've covered quite a few topics in the last 18 or so months, having done 70 episodes now, but there's always something to talk about. There's always something that's a headline currently or something that's burning at the back of somebody's mind that they want to discuss or find out about. So let us know what you'd like to hear about and what you'd like us to talk about, and we'll be sure to do it. We're all ears. But for today, we're going to get into the types of advisory accounts, talking about the different structures and see how some of the investments fit into those. So you want to take it away? Sure. And we actually have covered off some of this on previous podcast episodes. We've talked about the evolution of the investment advisor. And that evolution, of course, includes the evolution of the type of brokerage accounts or advisory accounts that have been popular over the years. But this one, we're really going to focus in on those types of accounts. And so let's start with the what I will call the traditional brokerage account, And I say traditional because it's sort of the way the brokerage business has operated for the last, I don't know, 70 years. And this type of account is a transactional account. And what that means is that the typical interaction between the broker, in this case, and the client is that the broker would call the client with a recommendation to buy or sell a stock or a bond or a mutual fund. And then there would be commissions charged on those securities purchases or sales. Now, I want to point out you're using the term broker for a reason because in that relationship, they're brokering a trade. That's right. And even though they do provide advice, the advice would be more related to advice on a particular individual stock, let's say, or whether it should be bought or sold. 
And mutual funds also make up part of that. And we're going to talk a little bit more about how mutual fund fees are constructed a little bit later on. But just for the purposes of discussing traditional brokerage accounts, when a mutual fund is purchased for a client under that type of account, in the old days, there could have been an upfront fee charged, if you can believe it, up to 9% of the value of the fund. That went away back in the 90s. And then there was other ways for the brokers to earn commissions, either through a deferred sales charge where they would be paid 5% of the value of the fund or some other structure. But we're going to get into that later. Suffice it to say that there was a commission earned by the broker and by the broker's firm on that transaction. In all of these cases, the client or the mutual fund company would be paying the brokerage firm the commissions on that particular transaction. When I hear of traditional brokerage accounts, it reminds me of the movie Wall Street, where Bud Fox is trying to land Gordon Gecko as a client, and he goes to see Gordon Gecko. and I don't want to ruin it for anybody that hasn't seen Wall Street, but it's been around since like 1987, and a great movie, actually. But what does he do? He, he goes in with a trade idea of a couple of stocks that he likes, and he tries to convince Gordon Gecko to give him some money and buy those yeah, stocks. That's right. And listen, when I started in the business over 25 years ago, this was the primary type of account. And these accounts are still in use today, and there's actually nothing wrong with them. It's just that there have been some changes in the way that advisors are brokers, previously brokers, now advisors, and their clients interact with each other. And as the broker evolved into the role of an advisor, the transactional account may not be the most appropriate to reflect that role. So I just want to talk maybe a couple of pros and cons of the transactional account. Now, I've heard this from some clients over the years. Some people actually believe that the transactional type of account keeps the advisor on their toes, meaning that they have to continually be coming up with good trade ideas, and they feel that if the structure was different, then the advisor might not be quite as, I don't know, up to speed on these kinds of ideas. Like they got their finger on the pulse of the market. That's right? right. Some people do want to be actively involved with trade recommendations and debate whether a recommendation is a solid one and what their views are. And so a lot of people do like to get into the nuts and bolts of an individual recommendation, whether it's to buy a stock bond or mutual fund. Well, I want to get into that a little bit because you and I have talked about this many times, I think in some past episodes too, where in this type of relationship, so let's say you've got a client, we'll call them Jane, Jane Doe. And Jane comes to their broker and says, Mr. Broker, I'd like to, or Mrs. Broker, I'd like to buy a stock. And the broker goes and finds a stock for Jane to buy. My question to you is this, Greg, what makes that broker more knowledgeable than the rest of the market to which they're trading against? Well, it's a good question. And of course, we've talked about that on many episodes. And the answer is, it's a little bit unclear. We don't believe that any one person will have more information than the market as a whole has, and therefore will be able to identify undervalued securities more than anybody else. We believe that the market generally has it right. But to your point that that Jane Doe might be looking for their broker to be fairly active, to have their finger on the pulse. That's right. So now they're talking about not one trade, but a multitude of trades. Exactly. With that idea being that that person must know more than the rest of the marketplace. Yes, exactly. And that sort of gets into some of the cons of the transactional type account or the traditional account. And one is that's been identified by regulators, not just people in the industry or clients, but the regulators, and that is that there's an inherent conflict of interest. 
when an advisor or a broker calls up a client with a bunch of trades that he's going to earn, he or she will earn a commission on, then are those trades really in the best interests of the client? Will they really make a big difference to the portfolio? Or is it a way to generate revenue? And again, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on anybody that's in that role. I was in that role myself, and I still am with many clients. But there is an inherent conflict that you need to totally trust the person that you're dealing with to ensure that that conflict isn't finding its way into the relationship. But the other thing, and I think one that's even more important from us, who for our team, who have never been involved heavily in stock trading or transactions, is just that it doesn't really recognize all of the services being offered by the advisors to the clients. The focus is on the last trade or the next trade. Exactly. And as we've talked in the past, as everyone that listens to our podcast know, we believe that planning is one of the most important activities that you can do prior to making any investment recommendations or any investment purchases. I ran into a guy a few years ago and he was all excited because he was going to start offering his clients financial planning. <laughs> it's like this new thing or something. Oh, yes. Yes. Right? And that is a very significant change from when I entered the business because when I entered the business, there were not a lot of advisors doing planning. And that started to change in the late 90s and early 2000s. The focus became a lot more on planning and that became incorporated into a lot more interactions between advisors and their clients, which kind of leads us into the next type of account then. So the first one was the traditional transactional account. The next one are the fee-based accounts, and we call them fee-based. It's really an asset-based fee account. And in those types of accounts, the investors would pay a fee based on a percentage of the assets under management for the services. And those services would include all transactions and other fees that might otherwise be charged separately. There's obviously a wide range of fees. In our case, our fee is 1% on the first million dollars of investment assets and half a percent on the next nine million. But again, the fees do vary by advisor and by firm, but that's kind of a 1% fee is a pretty typical starting fee for accounts. And the idea behind that is that if you have an active trading strategy, rather than paying a commission for each trade, you just get a number of trades covered for the year under that fee arrangement. Absolutely. So the fee would cover... Any trade costs, whether they're stock transactions, bond transactions, or mutual funds. And there's also no extra fees. You know, many people are familiar with RSP administration fees, which are charged annually in transactional accounts. Those fees are all covered within that. So, and the fee basically includes all services provided by the advisor. And and so, as we talked, it's not just trading. There's the financial planning, there's the consulting aspect, there's developing plans, meeting with family members, all of the things that we like to do as advisors to ensure we know everything we need to know about our clients and their goals. I would say that then the fee-based arrangement is a step up from the traditional transactional arrangement because you can incorporate things like intergenerational wealth transfer, for example, that has nothing to do with, should I buy Suncor and sell Synovus. That's right. And wait, disclaimer, we're not recommending any of those trades, by the way. No, we're not. That's right. And we're not saying that buying and selling stocks is not one method of building investment strategies for clients. Many of our clients and many clients in general still like to hold portfolios of stocks. And there's a number of ways to achieve that, the transactional account and the fee-based account. So let's talk a little bit about pros and cons of the 
fee-based or the asset-based fee structure. Well, as we talked about already, there's no costs to do a transaction. So there's no limit on, oh, do we really want to do this? I don't want to spend the money to do this transaction. It's all covered. I think most importantly, what it does is it aligns the interests in those placing the trade, i.e. the advisors and those whose money is being invested, the client, as the more the account grows, the higher the fees will be. And if the account goes down in value due usually to a bear market or a market correction, then the fees will be lower. And so essentially everyone's on the same side of the table. And the only way the advisor can hope to earn more fees from a client is through the growth of the portfolio. So as I talked about, the fees, in addition to covering transactions, they cover other costs such as annual RSP administration fees, any custodial services, all planning is all included, etc. And there's another benefit, and that is the fees that are charged in non-registered investments basically can be tax deductible on the personal tax return. We always, of course, recommend people talk to their tax advisors with regards to that aspect. But certainly talk to your lawyers or accountants about that because those fees are deductible, whereas similar fees in a transactional account are not. Or harder to, maybe. That's right. So in a fee agreement, you actually get a copy of your fee summary at the end of the year and you just submit it with your tax return as a credit and life is good. Exactly. But what are the cons? There are some cons, or at least for some people. And one is that if someone's expectation is to do a lot of trading, if the belief is that the main reason for being in a fee-based account is to be able to do tons and tons of transactions without having to pay for each of them, then there may be some disappointment if that doesn't happen. And as we know from research, actively trading an account does not necessarily improve account performance. And in fact, in some cases, active trading is actually detrimental or negative for performance. So it really requires that the client and the advisor really understand and agree that the fee-based approach is the right one for them. The other con might be that some of the fees charged in registered accounts, RSPs, RIFs, locked-in retirement accounts, tax-free savings accounts, cannot be written off against personal tax returns. Well, let's talk about discretionary accounts. You talked about transactional accounts, and we talked about fee-based accounts and those differences. The newest part of the evolution or the continuance of evolution is discretionary accounts. Would you say that? I would. And what exactly is a discretionary account, Colin? Well, it's good that you ask. First of all, a discretionary account is a fiduciary relationship. So I want to talk about that for a minute. Okay. So Investopedia defines fiduciary as a person or organization that acts on behalf of another person or persons, putting their interests ahead of their own with a duty to preserve good faith and trust. Being a fiduciary thus requires being bound both legally and ethically to act in the other's best interests. So that's the definition of a fiduciary by Investopedia. And interesting, you'd think that in any advisory relationship that that fiduciary responsibility would exist. But it doesn't. But it doesn't. That's right. So a discretionary account is one where there's an agreement between the client and the advisor for the advisor to be able to discretionarily trade the account on behalf of the client without having to review each trade with them. And in order to do that, it has to be a fiduciary relationship. Now, I have this ongoing debate with a client about how advisor spelled. So whether it's a advisor, A-D-V-I-S-O-R yes, or, or A-D-V-I-S-E-R. Yes. And one of them 
indicates fiduciary and one of them indicates salesperson. And this client would always ask me how I spell advisor, trying to point out if we were a fiduciary or not. And my answer to him was always the same. Well, I don't really care how they spell advisor because we're portfolio managers, licenses portfolio managers, which actually means we do have a fiduciary duty in that relationship and in that licensing structure. So the benefit of a discretionary account is that, as I say, the client and the advisor come to an agreement on things like what should the asset allocation be? What strategy should that be? What kinds of securities should be held in the portfolio? And all of those things are documented in what's called an investment policy statement. And they're signed by all parties. And then the monitoring of that portfolio was done by, I guess, a compliance area that makes sure that everything is within the ranges that are prearranged between the advisor and client at the beginning. So to do so, there is a fee that's charged, much the same as a fee-based arrangement. And in our case, it's actually the same fee. We charge the same fee, whether it's a typical fee-based arrangement or it's a discretionary fee-based arrangement. It's the same. And what do you get for it? Greg, that's the question that people always ask. What do you get for being in a discretionary account? And I always answer, well, you get things like more regular rebalancing of your portfolio, where, I don't know, when the market is going through volatile swings up or down, we're able to do rebalancing trades. So you're potentially selling something that's gone up in value and buying something that's gone down in value and waiting for things to recover and then maybe doing the opposite trade when it does. So you're picking up little bits of return each time you do a rebalancing trade. That's right. That's one benefit. The second benefit I would say is that it sort of gives people the ability to sleep at night because they know that their portfolio is being managed without them having to spend all the mental energy of managing it. Like we don't have to call people and say, we want to sell this and buy this and this is why and here's the benefit and here's the pro, here's the con. They know that if we're doing a trade, it's because it's in their best interest already. That's right. And that's that fiduciary responsibility that gives them the comfort. That's not only an ethical, but a legal responsibility. So they have the comfort that, okay, that trade has to be in my best interest and in line with the parameters of the investment policy statement. Yeah. And as we talk about evolution of the role and that, and we're talking again about looking under the hood, I believe is what we called this one and the different account structures. I think this is my own opinion. Discretionary management services are the way to go if you have a good relationship and that your transactional brokerage relationship would be more like Neanderthal-like knuckle-dragging <laughs> behavior where it's sort of like we've found fire, we're able to make it quite easily, let's move on with the world. I may not be quite so far in that direction as you. I think there's a couple of things. I mean, transactional arrangements can still work as long as they understand and the relationship and the role of the advisor in the relationship is in line with what we think it should be for all clients. So when you think about it, I mean, for all clients, we believe that the right approach is to understand all of the key factors affecting their financial lives and understanding their goals for the future and developing a financial plan and then an investment plan to achieve that. And I think once you've done that, then the nature of the arrangement is still important, but it's less important. So for example, if you're comparing somebody in a transactional account to a fee-based account, as long as the services offered are the same and everybody understands what the services will be and totally understands what the fees will be, then some people may choose one of those approaches. But if a transactional account is 
utilized the way they were 20, 30, 40 years ago, then I totally agree with you that it's missing most of the important aspects of financial advice. And that is based around having a plan. And I know I'm being kind of hard when I say things like Neanderthal-like knuckle-dragging behavior, but the point is of the accounts we've opened in the last year, 100% of them, I believe, have been opened as discretionary portfolios. And so my only comment to those that are in a transactional relationship, and you're right, sometimes it makes sense. Like if you have a legacy stock position and you don't want to sell it for some reason, well, you wouldn't put it into a fee-based account, number one. Like you wouldn't pay an ongoing fee. Of course. Just to custody a stock. It belongs in a transactional account. But if you're divesting that legacy account and now you're talking about the next 20 years of investment returns and portfolio management, perhaps it makes more sense to be in a discretionary portfolio. And I think one of the important pros and cons, when we talk about pros and cons of discretionary accounts, the pros are certainly the fiduciary relationship, the ability of somebody to sleep well at night, know that things are being taken care of. One of the cons is that I do have a number of clients who do like to be involved in understanding what securities, even though there's no lack of trust, there's just a need for knowledge. They like to discuss it. They like to know, and they like to have that conversation. And so they might end up in a regular fee-based account, but not discretionary. And that's why I think that the key thing is that people should understand the types of accounts that are available and then select the one that is most in line with their interests and how they like to have a relationship with their advisor. Yeah. You don't want to put the cart before the horse. You've got to figure out number one, where the best strategy for you and your family and your goals And as you mentioned, it's going to start with some planning. I would say if you ever come across an individual who leads that relationship with product, you're going to run into an issue potentially. That's right. That's That's all I'm saying. So for sure. And we've talked about that on other podcasts as well. It's the prescribing medications before doing the exam. Well, you have a saying you always say, like, what do you say? Like, if you're a hammer, how does it go? If your only tool is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So we don't want that hammer nail relationship. We want a bigger toolbox. Exactly. And that's what these types of accounts do. The different strategies, one may work better for a client than another one. There are some advisors that only work on a certain basis. So for example, there are many advisors who will only operate on a fee, asset-based fee arrangement and will not do transactional. There are many advisors who choose only to do discretionary management. We currently offer all of those to our clients based on our clients' wishes. But it's not inconceivable that over time that could change as well. Well, and as I said, like 100% of new relationships have gone discretionary. Whereas when you and I started working together, which is now 14 years ago, Greg. That's right. That wasn't the case. Most of the relationships were transactional. It's true. So there's definitely an evolution there. And it's an evolution that is taking place with advisors and with investors. Oh, by the way, it is 14 years ago this month that uh, you and I started working together. Oh, happy anniversary. Yes, happy anniversary. They said it wouldn't last. Oh, they did. Yeah. (laughs) Let's get into a brief discussion on the mutual fund structures, what kind of mutual funds there are there, and where they fit into each of those three buckets of account strategies. Yeah, because mutual funds are interesting. I think most people fundamentally understand, okay, well, if I'm buying or selling a stock under a transactional account, I'm going to pay a commission. And that commission could be anywhere from $150 to $500, depending on the advisor and the firm and the value of the stock transaction. Or in the US, it might be $0 now. That's right. You can do it for zero if you're doing it yourself. 
But mutual funds are slightly different. And so let's go back to the transactional type of account. So there's two types of mutual funds that could be purchased in those accounts. One would be the A class, and A just stands for advisor class. And those are also called front-end load mutual funds. Load is just a word that the industry came up with. It sounds better than commission somehow. <laughs> front end I don't load, think it sounds better than commission. No, I don't either. It's a <laughs> weird word. Anyway, front-end load just means that there could be a commission charged up front. And the advisor has the ability to charge anywhere from 0% up to 2% in order to purchase that fund. I just want to say from the standpoint of our team, we have not charged a commission or load on a mutual fund purchase in over 21 years. So that's not something that was ever part of our business. It is something that's available. We typically would charge a 0% load. Hey, and we're not a charity. No. We're getting paid by the mutual fund company, a trailer for that position. We don't feel it's necessary to charge the client anything because of that. Exactly. With these types of mutual funds that are purchased in transactional accounts, there will be a service fee that's part of the overall management expense ratio of the fund. That service fee, which could be anywhere from half a percent to 1%, is paid to the advisor's firm. That's the A-class fund. And then even scarier are the what they call low load, which means low commission or deferred sales charge. This is where things get dark. Yeah, this is where it gets scary. Yeah, so the deferred sales charge is something that pretty much no longer exists in the industry. But the way it worked was when an investor would buy a mutual fund, they would not have to pay a commission up front if they bought it on the deferred sales charge basis. The advisor's firm would be paid 5% by the fund company. But in many cases, those clients believed they weren't paying a commission. That's right. And then how did the fund company, how could they afford to pay a 5% commission? Well, they required the investors to stay invested in their mutual funds for up to about seven years. And that ensured them that they would have that continuing stream of income from these mutual fund investors, and they would get their 5% deferred sales charge paid back. Well, that's something that's gone the way of the dodo birds. The deferred sales charge mutual fund is now a thing of the past. And the low load version of that was just a deferred sales charge that had a lower 2% commission to the advisor's firm. I think it was started at 3%. Or maybe 3 And it had a shorter time that the investor had to hold those funds before they could sell out and not pay a fee on the way out. Let's give an example. So in a deferred sales charge situation, which some people referred to them as discount because they oh, said, DSC, it said DSE, yeah. which is not, they are not a discount, they're a premium. But in that situation, if you purchased a whatever XYZ mutual fund in year one, in year three, you needed to sell it for some reason, you're buying a house or whatever, you could have a redemption penalty of as much as maybe 5% or something. Yes, that's right. So it was, I think in general, it was meant to dissuade people from selling out of their positions. Yes. But I don't believe many people knew the extent of the redemption period when they purchased the funds. And that's just part of the issue. One of the key things with any type of account, whether it's transactional fee-based or discretionary, is that fees should be 100% transparent. Investors need to know and deserve to know exactly what the fees are that they're paying, whether they're paying them to the advisor's firm or whether they're paying to the issuer of the securities. And fee transparency is something that's become much more topical and the regulatory organizations have actually made some very positive moves in that direction to make sure people understand what fees they're paying. 
Let me ask you this then. If low load and DSC funds are sort of the worst of the bunch and front end or A class are better because you're not paying a commission and there's no redemption penalty, can you tell the listeners, is there a better way of holding them? Well, and certainly I can. Those two types of funds we talked about are relevant for transactional accounts. For fee-based and discretionary accounts, there's a class of mutual fund shares called F class, where F stands for fee-based. And what's happened here is that any service fee that would be payable to the advisor's firm has been removed from the management expense ratio. So if an A-class fund paid 1% to the firm, then that 1% is gone. And so the total management fee there includes only the costs of managing that particular fund by the fund company and trading costs and things like that. And so the overall management expense ratio is much lower in an F-class fund. And the reason for that is because the investor is paying the advisor's firm directly through their fee, as I say, whether it's in a fee-based arrangement or a discretionary account. So it becomes transparent, but it also becomes tax-deductible potentially. Exactly. So the tax benefits on mutual funds are particularly strong because that fee, that service fee, is being removed from the management expense ratio where it's not tax-deductible and it's now being charged in the typical fee-based account where it can be deductible. So that's it. There you have it. Three types of accounts and pros and cons to each. But certainly, as you pointed out, the evolution has been from brokerage-style transactional accounts towards fee-based and discretionary accounts. Well, yeah. I mean, you expect evolution in, well, everything these days. If you think back to the way things were done 40 years ago in any business line, I'm sure there's been evolution. If there hasn't been... I would be shocked. The industry is always looking for new and better ways to do things. And I think the thing we have to acknowledge is that this isn't a cynical, always looking for ways to make more money or anything like that. What it is, is it's, these are ways to offer better services to investors and clients and have them get more value out of the relationship with their advisors. Exactly. Well, listen, I think that about wraps it up for today. It does. I'd like to ask anybody listening out there to please go ahead and give us a rating if you're listening to us on any podcast subscription services or anything like that that allow you to do that. And we'll look forward to our next week's call when we'll be talking about, I'm not sure yet, but I'm sure it'll be fun. Look forward to it. All right. Till then. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Woodgundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Woodgundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Woodgundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2021.